Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Today we enter week seven of the lockdown and the new normal appears to be this. We fully expect a plan to be proposed on Thursday which will set out the roadmap for a return to work, an opening of some schools and even an unlocking of our currently impaired way of life. Looking around this morning it would appear that the weekend has passed without any major incidents involving the police and the lockdown. There are plenty of police out there but they appear to be much more relaxed about the rules than they were last month. We want to hear your stories from the past few days. Were you you out and about were your streets still deserted and have you returned to work this week for the first time uh, since basically february coming up at 11 o'clock peter hitchens returns with his observations this week what will he think of the proposed government plans to restart the economy no doubt uh, he will say it's too little too late i don't believe that i think there is still time to get the economy back up and running uh, of course with some changes and of course with some damage to it uh, but nevertheless actually working somehow kicking us off we'll take the temperature of the nation with george pascoe watson former political editor of The Sun, as we find out what companies in Britain are saying about the progress of the UK as compared to elsewhere in Europe. Let's remember that in Austria, they've opened up the hairdressing salons, they've opened up the hotels, or they're about to, and certainly in Italy, people are now moving around quicker and more frequently than they once did. We're also joined by former World Health Organization Dr. Professor Carol Sikora with the latest on the vaccine and the testing going on. Uh, but of course, we want to hear from you, 0344 499 1000. Esther Ranson is on later on as well explaining why she believes keeping the over 70s behind closed doors is a good thing and our homeschooling section today is all about earthquakes and why they happen 0344 499 1000 don't forget uh, we are live streaming on YouTube on Facebook and on Twitter you're listening to me Mike Graham on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course Talk Radio Mid-morning with Mike Graham Talk Radio So the weekend has come and gone I would say that it was probably less busy yesterday out on the streets of this city in London uh, than it was the week before because of course all these maniacs who like exercising apparently like exercising a lot more in the nice weather there are an awful lot of bicyclists out there though cyclists uh, doing all manner of different things in fact i saw a cyclist yesterday going past a, um, a speed camera at more than 20 miles an hour now is he going to get a speeding ticket I very much doubt it. Let's talk to George Pascoe Watson, uh, a man who I don't imagine spends a great deal of time on a bicycle. George, very good morning to you. <laughs> good morning. How are you? 
Yeah, we're very good. Thank you. Nice to to hear from you. Yes, indeed. Now, interesting week to come, I think, uh, which is what I want to talk about, because uh, there's a strong sort of sense that on Thursday we will start to hear the government's roadmap plan for sort of uh, lifting the lockdown in one way, shape or form. What are you hearing? Well, I think that's right. Enormous amounts of work are going on behind the scenes Mm. in Whitehall, and uh, ministers are very, very keen to get things going. You know, but there's a very, very clear problem emerging, Mike, which is... Um, a lot of people are a bit nervous about going back to to work, and you can understand why. You know, uh, a lot of people are thinking uh, it's been relatively safe for me being at home, being isolated with my family, uh, but going back to the office, whatever that office looks like, means perhaps a different uh, level of safety. And Mm. I think the government's going to have a a difficulty on its hands in persuading large numbers of people to actually return to work. Yes, and I think also the method of how you get to work is going to be a problem as well, isn't it? Because, I mean, we're going to be talking later on this hour about the trains, uh, and if you want to social distance properly on trains, you're going to have to basically put them at something like 15 to 20% capacity, meaning if you want to have any meaningful number of people travelling into the city, you're going to have to be uh, staggering their working hours, aren't you? Well, there will have to be shift patterns. You just look at London, and let's not make this a London-centric conversation because lots of our Mm. listeners are up and down the country, but uh, London is a good place to start because uh, in the rush hour normally on the uh, Victoria line, there are about 120 passengers in a tube carriage. Uh, They're talking about a restriction of 20 right. now. Uh, so that's a, fa- a reduction that? of a factor of like six, basically. Precisely. And, yeah. and, and, of course, everybody in London uh, on the public transport will be encouraged to wear a face veil of some description, some yeah. face covering, not necessarily a mask. Will they be able to uh, you know, make that mandatory? Will it be the law? And the same is true up and down the country. So if, even if you think about huge numbers of people walking over one of the London bridges yeah. into the city, again, that will not be able to be done with social distancing. And the same is true in factories, in shops, in offices up and down the land. And one of the cr- critical audiences here, Mike, I have to say, are the trade unions because lots of trade unions representing their people are saying already behind the scenes to the government, we don't think it's safe for people to go back to work and we are looking for um, incentives, let's Mm. put it that way, which I think means cash and breaks uh, for people to go back to work. And it's going to be an industrial relations challenge as much as it's going to be anything else. Well, it really is. I mean, you represent an awful lot, well, not represent, but you have clients who are in almost every sort of um, business in the country with Portland Communications. I mean, what are they saying about the way that we may be changing our, our systems of work? Because a lot of people have said to me, because so many people have now been working from home and it's been relatively successful, there's no reason why they all have to actually physically be in one place. Well, it's true, and we won't really know until um, a few months' time. Uh, A lot of people are anticipating that they'll have to change the way that the shift patterns work, that the way that their colleagues uh, are actually working together. Do you need to have as many physical meetings with people in the same room? Mm. Can we have some people working from home? I do think that people in the city is going to be a very interesting knock-on effect for the major commercial landlords, the huge... Uh, those huge flat, um, blocks of uh, office blocks and, and the shiny sort of shards and places like that. The people who own those are maybe in for a shot because businesses may not need so many floors of those shiny offices in the future. And I think that's going to be a change. Whether or not people still need to mix uh, is, is, it remains to be seen. I personally think, and most of my uh, the, the businesses that I work with are thinking about ways of making sure that humans continue to work with each other in some way. But, of course, as the Prime Minister has said, 
or will say, I think, later on today, until we get a vaccine in this world, uh, this is going to be a changed way of working for a very long time. It will be, although an interesting piece in The Guardian this morning, although no doubt there will be the usual uh, sh shouts of horror from the kind of Big Brother Brigade saying that ministers might be uh, tr trying to work out some way of getting a sort of immunity passport, i.e. effectively a piece of paper that you carry around with you which says you've had COVID-19 uh, and you're safe to return to work. That's right. And uh, the trial this week uh, down in the uh, Isle of Wight with, uh, with the phone app is all part of this tracking and tracing. It's all part of using technology to say to people, I've had it, I'm clean. Hmm. The trouble is that the, the scientists are discovering now that this virus is mutating and changing all the time. Yeah. And there's absolutely no guarantee that one person's uh, antibody today will stop a, a second attack sometime down the track. And that's one of the things that the whole of humanity is going to have to deal with. Yes. And isn't there a problem as well, uh, George? If you do have a sort of those who go to work and travel to get there and those who work from home, you're kind of in danger of creating a sort of two-tier society, effectively, aren't you? Well, you're definitely uh, on that. Uh, this is a good point. And uh, somebody that I was talking to in government uh, was saying this to me over the weekend, is that it's all very well having... Uh, teleconferences, uh, video conferences, uh, when everybody is at home, as it were, yes. uh, and, and, and everybody's a sort of level playing field. That dynamic changes from an office perspective when some people are at home and some people are, quote, in the room together. Yes. And it definitely changes the dynamic, and that is one of the uh, tiny, tiny... Uh, things that details that we kind of overlook until it begins to change the dynamic yes. of the power structures of work and who gets to make the decisions. Mm. And that does matter from a business perspective. It may sound like a, a, a small bit of detail, but these are the, this is the detail that makes the difference. Well, these are the bits of nitty-gritty that are important, aren't they? Because, I mean, you'll remember from your days in newspapers, as, as I do, there was a somewhat occasionally poisonous atmosphere that had to be sorted out. And if you weren't physically in the office to be part of that, uh, you would run the risk of, of getting shafted, in other words. It's absolutely true. Out of sight is, I'm afraid, out of mind. And he or she who has the, the last voice or the most powerful voice often is the decision maker. And things will change in that respect. And, and those are the sorts of issues that managers are going to have to uh, be pretty uh, deft and, and think about mm. as, as we try and move into this new phase. But certainly there's, there's a real danger of an us and them, people at work, people not at work. Uh, and I think it's, you know, this, this change is going to take us all by surprise. And don't forget, I would say this to our listeners, there's nobody in government anywhere in the world who has got some unique insight on this. Uh, nobody is smarter than anybody else. It's something that we're going to have to figure out as, as, as humanity. No, indeed. I mean, I was looking at the story from Italy this morning where they've sort of eased certain parts of their lockdown. But we always have to remember that in Italy and Spain, they were locked down far harder than we were. So for people to go, oh, but look, we can do what they're doing in Italy and Spain, they're, they're not even really where we are now in terms of our lockdown because our lockdown has never been particularly harsh, I don't think. Well, we haven't had a lockdown as far as I'm concerned. No. I know it's, a, it's an easy headline, but the reality is we have been able to be moving freely around the country yeah. uh, and, and our neighbourhoods. In Italy and in Spain, you have not been allowed out of your house, mm. and that is a huge step. Oh, yeah. Um, and and the, the reason for that is to keep this R figure down, this uh, reinfection figure down, yes. so that when you do let people back into society, there's not very much COVID-19 in society. Mm. And the longer you keep people away from each other, the less COVID-19 there is, and that's what the government's plan is right now. And nobody really knows when it's safe to let people off the, uh, off the hook. And, 
And if that R number starts going up above one, then it means that more and more people will become infected and the pool of infections goes up. Um, so there is a point at which we have to work out, are we going to try and vaccinate our way through this or are we going to allow everybody to basically get it and, and fight it and grow some sort of an antibody? Yes, and I mean, the other, the other sort of argument, I suppose, is the testing one. If you keep testing more and more people, you get more knowledge, you get more understanding, you get more kind of... Um, clarification, if you like, and more people can go back to work because they will, for example, have had this antibody test, which shows that they didn't that they they have had it. That's a, and that is entirely what the British government's plan is. It is to have such a strong testing regime that we can track it, we can trace everybody, everybody who's got it can be treated or self-isolated. Uh, and so on and so forth until we actually have a, an overarching picture of the whole nation. And that will take some time. It's an enormous, enormous challenge. It really uh, is. It's quite uh, remarkable that we are where we are and, in fact, the, the whole country hasn't sort of fallen in on itself in a way. Well, it, it is a testament to people's stoicism, to people's uh, understanding that they all have a responsibility you know, people were knocking Matt Hancock, the health secretary, mm. or did he, did, he, did he not get 100,000 tests? The reality is he did, but, yeah. but either, that's not the point. The point is setting a big, ambitious target uh, galvanised all the players in the industry and in government and in Public Health England to come together to do something which had never done, be done before, and that's how you, that's, you set huge targets and try and hit them, and that's how you drive motivation forward in very short periods of time. You know, it normally takes... Uh, a pharmaceutical company, anything between 12 and 15 years to come forward from a molecule to a vaccine. Yeah. And uh, some of these these firms aren't being able to do this within you know, a very short period of time, months, not, yes. not years. And that's very impressive. But there are some businesses that we can't... I mean, I certainly personally cannot quite imagine returning in any way, shape or form to normal really ever. And one is the airline business. You know, looking at some pictures in the mail today, there's pictures of, uh, of flights of Barcelona, British Airways, which went yesterday, full of people. Um, now, under the new rules, presumably that wouldn't be allowed. Well, there is a moot point about what's going to happen in aviation. First of all, how do you get people to the airport um, in a way which means that they're not circulating COVID? The right. second thing is when you get on a plane, of course, it's circulated air. There's no fresh air. Right. So it doesn't matter if you've got two meters between people or not. People, All people are breathing the same yes. air for the duration of that flight. Yeah. Uh, and the science is quite clear. Nobody is really saying that a mask is going to make that much difference. So it's not clear how aviation gets back on its feet. One thing is absolutely for sure that the aviation industry is crying out to the government to say, let's set some international standards for airports and airlines to make sure that this industry carries on. Because it's not just about its economics. It's about, you know, air, airports particularly are our gateway mm. for millions of industries. If we don't have, let's say, uh, func fully functioning Heathrow in September when all the international students are due to come back to this country, then the universities fall over because that's where they get their fees from. Yeah. You know, the same is true of all the other industries who rely on that trade coming in and out of airports. So getting this right is super important. Yeah, absolutely right. And as far as the kind of restaurant business, the hospitality business is concerned, another massive kind of issue uh, which seems at the moment kind of rather insurmountable. Well, it's hard to see because they're going to be the last uh, to open. And, uh, of course, they are very, very uh, tight margins, those industries. So they don't have much capital to sit on, not much spare cash to sit on. What they eat, they uh, what they make, they eat, as yeah. it were. Uh, and, you know, after a while, 
the staff are going to go away, the talent goes away, the custom goes away. And I really do worry for that sector. And I know that the, the, so the food and drink industry are doing everything they can to work out ways of getting people to come back in. And, of course, the other point is economically, and I don't want to be a doom monger, but economically, our people, people are going to be poorer. Mm. Lots of us are going to be much, much poorer because um, nobody can trade anymore, and that means fewer people are going to be working. We're going to have a huge unemployment crisis. Where is the spare cash for people to go out and enjoy mm. a few beers or to have a, a meal out with the family or friends? That's the other worrying thing. So even when they do open their doors... Is there still going to be the trade, the custom to pick the industry up again? So yes. I think you're right, Mike. Big, big seismic never again changes. Yeah, absolutely incredible stuff. George, thanks very much indeed. George Pascoe Watson, former political editor of The Sun, now chairman of Portland Communications, talking to us there about the massive seismic changes to society that we may well have to go through, we may well have to experience in order to get the economy back to some form of, uh, of, of, of sort of swimming above the surface, if you like, because there's no question uh, that certainly plenty of damage has been done. However, if the government gets to grips with it this week and gets to grips with a plan of action of one kind or another, then surely we will be able to see light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that's what everybody wants to see. I think everybody understands that there might be fears about sending your kids back to school. There might be worries about getting on a train and having to travel to work if your employer is forcing you to do so. I don't see that happening, to be honest. I think people will be invited back to work. And if they want to go, they will go. And many people will want to go. Some people will not. But we want to hear from you, of course, as well. 0344 What did you see at the weekend? What was going on around you? What are you being told? Are you being asked to go back to work? Have you gone back to work? So many questions, so many answers. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And welcome back to Talk Radio. This is the independent republic of Mike Graham. We are here all the way through until 1 o'clock, here from 10 to 1 every single day, of course. There are new listeners joining us all the time. Uh, many of you joining on YouTube, where we are uh, uh, live streaming, and you can watch the whole show there, not only when it's on, uh, but you can also watch it back uh, when it's finished as well, because that stays on YouTube uh, for the rest of time, which is always handy uh, if you want to catch up with something that you may have missed. But do call us 0344-499-1000. Uh, this morning we've been talking about the possible plan that the government may unveil on Thursday um, to lift some of the lockdown restrictions that we're currently suffering from. We don't yet know quite what they will be. Suggestions are already that schools may uh, lift some of their uh, uh, classes and open up more of the uh, the school to more children around about June the 1st. Some parents, of course, will be un unwilling to send their children to school uh, because of fears that they will perhaps start a second peak. Let's talk to Professor Carol Sakura, though. Uh, he is, of course, a good friend of the show, former chief of the Cancer Programme at the World Health Organisation, Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham. Carol, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, tell us what you can about the um, uh, the situation regarding testing, because we got the news last week from Matt Hancock that basically, um, you know, the testing targets had been hit. Um, a lot of people asking me the question, how is this tracing business going to work? And how is the <laughs> way that we are testing people suddenly going to improve our lot, if you like, collectively? I mean, the answers, Mike, is nobody knows, not even <laughs> the government. They're making it up as they go. It's yeah. quite clear. Yeah. Uh, this, and it, it's, it's not their fault. They have to, because no one knows how we go forward, except that we're not the first to get out of lockdown. So the whole business of testing, tracing, and isolating people that are known to have virus, even if they haven't got any symptoms, is something that's been going on in other countries. The real 
difference in opinion is whether you go for what's called a hot release mm. you just say okay everybody get out there avoid crowds but get out there yes or you do it really slowly and carefully and i suspect here the advisors are going to be saying do it slowly and carefully yes and, because uh, they're going to have to look at presumably allowing people to go back to work one if they want to and two if they can in a reasonably safe manner Absolutely. And, you know, some people can work easily from home and be very productive. Other people just can't. Right. Um, you can't run the Royal Mail by staying at home, for example. Right. You've got to have postmen, you've got to have sorting offices, you've got to have drivers. Mm. So it would come to a collapse. And I think all the service industries, the food distribution chains have re behaved remarkably. They've just carried on. Yeah. I know it's a pain going to a supermarket and so on with the social distancing, but you can get anything you like. It, it's quite amazing. It really is. I mean, I say that to people all the time, that considering what's happened to the world, and it is, has happened to the world, it hasn't just happened to Britain, you know, we are coping, I think, pretty well. I, I think it is remarkable. And my son's a, a manager in the Royal Mail. Right. And, you know, it is just amazing to see. OK, he does a bit of overtime on a Sundays now to, to help out to, to move things. But the whole system, the logistics system is working. Amazon is still delivering parcels. Yeah. The NHS is functioning. The problem for the NHS is how to get out of COVID mode now and back into other things like my specialty, which is cancer. Yes. Uh, but we are getting getting there. It's just rather painfully slow to get out of it. No, of course. And as you would expect, though, and I think, you know, those who are being slightly impatient about it and saying we must do this, we must do that, I think fundamentally misunderstand how complex this all is. Exactly. And going back to your first question about testing, that's the key to find out how changes are occurring. So you do one thing, for example, you let young people out, you start nursery schools, mm. What then happens? What happens to the infection rate? Only by testing can you find that out. And that's why the testing does become very important. Obviously, that magic number, it's stuck at around 4,000 new cases a day. Mm. It's gone up because we are testing more people each yeah. day. And you want to see that begin to go down more dramatically, which it will. It will go down. It has in the other countries. But, of course, if you're not counting everybody anyway, is there any point in counting the ones that you are counting, if you know what I mean? <laughs> That's a good question. But if you look at the, the country that I, I like following most is Austria, because they came out on the 14th of April. Yeah. Uh, gentle easing of lockdown, gradually progressing schools, nursery schools opening, then primary schools. And their infection rate has not gone up at all. Mm. So the idea there'd be a second round, a surge of uh, infection when you get out, has just not happened there. And we all talk about the magic number, R0, which is the reproduction capability mm. of the virus, the number of people one person will infect. It's below one in the UK yesterday. Uh, it's about 0.7. As long as it stays below one, the virus runs out of steam and yeah. the pandemic comes to an end. Yes. That's what we've got to aim for. And what do we know, uh, if, if we do know at the moment, the, the length of time, for example, between somebody getting COVID-19 and maybe passing it on to somebody else? Because it seems to me that's an uncertainty it's in terms of we don't know how many weeks they can have it for before the other person gets infected. It's, it's completely uncertain, Mike. Not only that... We, don't even, we know that there are people that have no symptoms that actually are heavily infected yeah. and, and can be super spreaders. They can infect a whole load of people, yet they've got no symptoms. It's right. not their fault they're wandering around the streets right. because no one's, you know, they don't feel ill, they have no breathlessness, no cough, nothing. Right. And so they wouldn't even feel the need to get a test, presumably? No, they, w they wouldn't, and, and they'd be doing their job. Uh, and, you know, uh, the NHS is releasing an app in about two weeks' time. Yeah. 
the digital division called NHSX. Sounds like science fiction. It does. And my generation are going to struggle to load it <laughs> on my phone. I always I have to get my daughters to do this yeah. sort of thing. But, uh, you know, the young people can download it, and it works like a reverse Tinder. You want to avoid certain people around you yeah. and just uh, run the other direction. Yeah, absolutely right. It sends you a sing- signal by Bluetooth that you've been within a meter or so of someone that is known to be positive for mm. the virus. Now, the real question, what do you want to do about it? And that's just not clear at this point. How are you going to manage this sort of service? Well, this is one of the questions I wanted to put to you because I've got a good tweet here from Jake who says, I'm not sure I understand the track and trace idea. I might come into contact with 100 people in a week. So if I get a new cough, then does everyone I've met have to self-isolate? That means 100 people can't work because I have a little dry cough. That wouldn't work for a lot of companies, would it? No. And I went for a walk by the river yesterday on Sunday and I must have passed another 100 people. Right. Within maybe two metres, some may be a little bit closer if the path was narrow. But uh, so if I had the app, I would get a signal, say one or two of them were positive, were, became ill with corona, then what would I do about it? That's, that's the puzzle. I've not got my head around this. Um, who has to isolate and how long for? Mm. Uh, seven days, 14 days? We want to get Britain back to work, both small businesses and big businesses. We have to get Britain back to work for everybody's sanity and for the economy. So we have to do it safely, obviously. That's got to be priority. But I'm sure the two are compatible. We can get this whole system working. Everybody's been so good about the two metre. We need to know if one metre would do. I think it probably will. The WHO says it would be one metre is enough. We need to focus on that because that would make a huge difference for the workplace if it was only one metre. Yes, absolutely, it would. And interestingly, um, you put a tweet out uh, earlier on today about um, a French doctor claiming that the virus was in France in December, a month before the first confirmed case. I mean, we hear a lot of this uh, sort of anecdotally, um, Professor. I'm not quite sure what you make of it, but would you, would you be of the opinion that this coronavirus was around in November then? Uh, that's the difficulty is knowing because what we need to really the only way to sort it out is to sequence the RNA, the genetic backbone of this virus, yeah. and, and compare it to the one in Wuhan, which has been published, and then looking is it exactly the same virus or is it just a variant? There are lots of coronaviruses out there, mm. and it may be a, a local variant in France that's nothing to do with the pandemic. That's the trouble sorting these things out as something that they're going to take years to do, yeah. and we'll have so much information. But what we need is a way out of the current mess for society in Britain. Yes, indeed. What do you make of the Guardian story today? You may not have seen it, but ministers in talks about a possible sort of immunity passport that people could be given, <laughs> I, which I would show that they... We've tested all our staff with an uh, antibody kit. Yeah. The idea is if you've made the antibodies, then in theory you're immune, you've had the virus, you can just go. You don't need to socially distance. You could always imagine a situation where we have COVID-positive bars. To get in, you have to show your permit, yes. and you're allowed in. The bartenders are positive, and we all uh, have beer there, and you're jovial, no social distancing, and so on. Yeah. I suspect that's science fiction. Of our staff that we tested, we have about 200 staff, less than 10% were positive. We're doing oh, really? it again next week, four weeks on, and I would expect it may have been a little higher, maybe 15%. Mm. So not everybody converts 
deserts in the antibody test. And the reason for that is that there are other mechanisms that are equally important to defend us from the virus. Right. And so until we work those out and develop a test for them, it's not going to be used for either getting back to work for people or, perhaps more importantly, international travel. No, of course. I mean, I suppose if you test people for the antibody and they don't have it, it means they haven't had the coronavirus, which presumably would mean that they could also work, though, wouldn't it? Now, that's the problem. They may have had it and not raised any antibodies. They may have gobbled it up, but their cells, their white cells, the T lymphocytes, may have gobbled up the virus before there's any antibody response. And so there's no footprint to look for in the body. Right. The footprint's different from just antibodies. Does that, that also make you immune, then, if you have yeah, if that's that happened, but you don't immune, know? And you probably wouldn't get it again. Right, interesting. And the good news, I guess, is so far there has been no second wave anywhere. There was a little flicker of disappointment in Korea when it looked as though there was, but then it turned out it was just dead virus up in, in people's noses and that was causing the signal. They weren't actually infected again. So yes. Everyone's beginning to relax. The doomsters, of course, say it will come back in the winter. It'll overlap with the normal NHS winter pressures. Uh, but I don't think so. I think that we're going to see the end of this next month. Uh, the, the, society will just gradually return to normal. Yeah. Well, let's hope so. Professor Carol Sikora, thank you very much indeed. Uh, he is former chief of the cancer programme of the World Health Organisation, now dean of medicine at the University of Buckingham. Always a very sane voice on these matters. The trouble is, you see, that all the testing in the world that you can do will never give you a 100% result uh, of either how many people have been infected, how many people are immune, you know, whether or not you've actually had the disease doesn't always show up. You know, there's always these little wrinkles in every single testing situation. So there is no guarantee that one system fits all. So there is no guarantee by the same token then that if you are one of those journalists at one of these press briefings that says, why didn't we do this? Well, because this doesn't necessarily provide the answer to that. That's why. Let's talk to Paul who's in Stoke. Hi, Paul. Uh, morning, Mike. How yeah, are you? Yeah, very well, sir. What can I do for you? Good, good. Um, I spoke to you last week. I'd been for the coronavirus. Yes, test. you went to the drive um, the drive-in place, didn't you? That's correct. Yes, yes. So I got the result back. I think we spoke on Tuesday. Yeah. I got the result back about two thirty on Thursday. Okay. So it was after your show. Right. Didn't manage to ring you Friday, but it was positive. Was it? Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So it came back positive and. I, I just just followed the the, the, the sort of uh, government guidelines. My daughter was positive anyway. Right. My wife has had some of the symptoms but didn't get tested. So we're just making the assumption that she has had it. Right. Um, so have you have you got it currently, or have you had it in the past? I have now gone past the point of the seven days. Right. So though I've still got a, a, I've still got a, a cough. Mm which, the, according to the, the government uh, website, can last for several weeks, but yes. it doesn't mean you're spreading the coronavirus. Right. You, you've kind of had it, you've got rid of it, it's just uh, an aftermath, basically. So, yes, um, got by OK with it, uh, feeling a little bit on the weaker side, but not too bad. Um, There's nothing you can really take to make it better, is it? Do you take paracetamol or anything? No. Just, yeah, paracetamol, make sure you keep drinking plenty of water uh, and so forth. My right. daughter's gone back to work today. Okay. She works in the NHS, so she's done her time and uh, she's back out there. All right. um, so you didn't get a test for the for the um, the antibodies then? No, no, we just got the COVID-19 test, okay. which tells you that you've got COVID-19. Mm. 
So we're just making, I'm making the assumption that that the fact that we've had the, the COVID, we've got rid of it, but by virtue of that fact, you must have made some antibodies. Right. So, um, yeah, so we, we, we've got over it. Um, and, and and there we go. Yes, we're, we're no, out there now, I mean, it sounds a strange thing to congratulate you for, but congratulations, yeah. I suppose, are in order for you having it, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I did take the dogs for a walk yesterday, and uh, uh, first time for a while. And I must admit, it was strangely liberating. Yes. To actually be out and thinking, well, I can probably not catch this again. Yes. I'm not and also for those it. people who are wondering whether they've had it or wondering whether they've got it, it must be a real relief actually to know that you have. Yes, yes. Well, that's, this is one of the things I said to my, my wife. She said, well, I don't feel well enough to go for the test. I said, but at least if you've been for the test and you know you've had it, you know you've had it. Yes. That's it. Mm. You know, there's no question now. Um, so, in all fairness, she's to some degree still wondering whether she's actually had it. It would be un- unlikely that she hasn't, uh, given the environment yeah. with living with me and my daughter in the house. Sure. Um, but, yes, at least it's, you know you've had it and... You know, you can get out there and, you know, help people that, that uh, can't get out the back. Yes. No, absolutely right. Well, Paul, thanks a lot for keeping us informed about that. Paul called us last week to say that he'd had the test. Uh, he got the result back on Thursday. which was a pretty quick turnaround. It's about 48 hours, I think, since he went and got it done uh, in the car. And so um, he's relieved that he's got it. Um, will you be able to get yourself a test? The answer to that probably is yes. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's just after 11 o'clock on Monday, which has become known as the Peter Hitchens Half Hour. So Peter joins us now for the fifth time uh, in a row. Peter, very good morning to you. Morning to you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Before we get on to the business of the day, can I just ask you about one piece that you wrote over the weekend in which you said this, uh, that you thought that you had never really seen 
uh, the BBC uh, the, uh, being anti-government. You said, when I think you said, when did you last hear an anti-government voice on the BBC? Now little more than a servile state broadcaster. I would surely take issue with that because the BBC, led by Laura Kunzberg, has been very critical of the government, hasn't it? No, what they do is they, they, they criticise details of the implementation of the government policy. Mm. What they don't do is take is give any voice or platform at all to those who criticise the government policy as such. If you'd lived in the old Soviet Union, a censored police state... As you did. In, in, as I did. Yeah. You, there's pl there was plenty in the Soviet press, there's plenty of criticism of the delivery of, uh, of, of policies by government officials. Uh, there, was no, there was no shortage of that. You're completely free to do that mm. because it didn't strike fundamentally at the legitimacy of the state or ever, ever suggest that the, 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 the Communist Party's dominance of everything and all the policies, mad policies, which were then followed by it, were wrong. So you can criticize at that point, but that's not anti-government. Uh, that just serves a safety valve purpose of, 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 of giving the appearance of, of, of dissent while actually mm. not allowing any. And I, I would make the particular point here. One of the most prominent people in this country is Lord Sumption, a former Supreme Court justice, so loved and caressed by the BBC that they did an extraordinary thing a couple of years ago, I think actually last year, and awarded him the Reef Lectures, the, probably the, the biggest honour the BBC can provide. But this is something given to somebody who really has something to say. Yeah. They really loved him. Well, when Lord Sumption said, uh, as he did, that, the, that this whole shutdown was wrong and in many, many ways mistaken and dangerous, the only BBC programme which actually gave uh, him any time at all that I've been able to trace was The World at One. Now, apart from that, nobody. So a, a, a year ago, he was the hero of the hour. He was the person they most loved. They, they actually gave him free interrupted airtime for, I think, uh, six weeks uh, for long lectures. But when he says something critical about this policy... Down come the shutters. He's not, he's, not, he's not on Newsnight, he's not on Question Time, he's just not anywhere to be seen. Now, I think that, that demonstrates it. I'm just a scribbler, so what, what, whether they give me time or not, people will quite legitimately say, well, why on earth should they give Peter Hitchens any airtime? That's, uh, <laughs> well, that's, think, well, that's, why we, that's why we like having you on here. But, but... Of, in the case of Lord Sumption, you can't say that. This is someone who the BBC esteemed. And thought of as quite rightly, in my view, as a major intellectual and extremely important public figure. When he criticised it, they didn't actually treat this as the event that it was. Yes, but that, he's, that's he's also what you need to know. Yeah, he's also committed the, the heinous crime of suggesting that gender equality might have appalling consequences for justice. He um, said all kinds of things, but these didn't trouble anybody. I mean, if you if you read the Reef lectures or listened to them carefully as I did, and I wrote about them at the time because they were so fascinating, they were they were obviously the exercise of an extremely powerful mind. And not just that, but beautifully, beautifully stated in, in good, clear English by somebody who knows what he's talking about. But as I say, it's, you cannot say that he's a person of low status or no importance. A, a, a former member of the Supreme Court is, is obviously an important person, nor can you say he's stupid uh, or illiterate or in any other way marginal. And yet when he voiced serious cogent criticisms of this policy, the BBC did not in any way rush to give him a proper mm. platform. Yeah, I mean, that is the difficulty. I mean, I have to say, I've been sorely disappointed. Um, I take your point, and I, I understand what you're saying, but I'm also sorely disappointed with the, the, the kinds of questions that are being asked of this government. You know, albeit that they're, they're very rarely asking the sorts of questions that you would ask, like, you know, why are you doing this? And why, and why would you not, uh, you know, why would you not consider a different form of, of lockdown which allows the economy to work better and all of those things? But they're, they're not actually very good at it anymore, I don't think. I think I they already... were, Mike. <laughs> I mean, I, I speak as a former political correspondent and sworn member of the Westminster Lobby, uh, a, a very strange organisation of men and women, uh, 
to which I once belonged, and therefore of which I can speak with some knowledge. Mm. Uh, it's it's worse than it was when I was in it. I mean, when I was in it, there was a certain amount of uh, of, of, of club ability, yes. and willingness to be part of the machine. But there were also several independent minds and many people who were who were prepared to write awkward and difficult things. And there was a there was a, a, a variety because different people had different contacts, and there were two genuinely two distinct parties in those days. But since the days of Alistair Campbell in the 1990s, mm. the parliamentary lobby has basically become a government organ. Yeah, uh, there are there again there are a few exceptions. Uh, it, it, yeah, I, I liken it now among the Sunday papers, which can't run with the yeah. with, with the flock. But the in, in general, particularly with the broadcasters, and and and, and it, it's a big problem. Yeah, I mean, I liken it now more to a sort of uh, the sports reporting around a football club. You know, if you fall out of favour with the manager, you don't get invited to the press conference. You don't. Yeah, get you to don't ask get the question. stories, so, so it, you don't get. In, in the end, it becomes difficult to work. I mean, right. This is what Alistair Campbell discovered about uh, about it, and, and he exploited it. And every subsequent Downing Street uh, press operation has done the same. Yes. Now let's talk about uh, sort of what happened towards the end of last week, where there was definitely, for me anyway, a sense that the streets were getting busier, that many more people were voluntarily returning to work, whether or not they were given permission to, by the government or not. And certainly this Thursday, we we're expecting there to be some form of announcement which will lift some part of the lockdown. What's, what's been your sort of observations of that? I think there's still, uh, there's, a, there's people becoming exasperated. And I think particularly it's the, it's the white van men, the people who work for themselves. Yeah. And who and who make individual contracts with their customers, and who can privately get on with it? I think they're they're quietly coming out of uh, out of isolation and beginning to work again, and that's one of the reasons for the increased traffic. But on the other hand, I think an awful lot of the furloughed people uh, are still staying at home, and I think the, the the cities and the roads are still ominously quiet from the point of view mm. of anybody who's concerned about our economy and our economy's ability to sustain life and health into the into the future. It's, uh, the, the country is still undergoing and this, that untreated heart attack and stroke of which we spoke last week. Yes, indeed. And as far as um, what you think they could do, I mean, for example, if Boris Johnson, who is going to speak on Sunday next as well, I believe, as, as Thursday, I mean, what could they do, do you think, to administer what you might, if you continue the analogy, some form of, um, you know, sort of heart starter? But this is this glacial pace. I mean, you're going to be interviewing the, the owner of Il Portico uh, yeah. later on. Um, what is it to him that someone's going to say on Sunday that maybe just possibly measures might be taken which might make it possible at some time in the future with great restrictions for him perhaps to begin to do a tiny bit of business again? Yeah. That, what hope does that offer to anybody? The problem with this government is, is, is the Prime Minister is like the, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. You, you've, probably, you've seen the Disney Fantasia movie. Yes, in fact, it was well, one of my Sorcerer's first ever movies. He, he summons up these automatons to, 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 to carry water for him to, because he's lazy and then he realizes he can't stop them and ultimately he's about to drown uh, before he's rescued by the sorcerer yes. who returns but this is this is this is the prime minister but the trouble is there is no sorcerer to return and rescue him he has to rescue himself and he's created in the public mind this terror and this morning while i was out on my permitted exercise on my bicycle on a, the path was not particularly narrow but there was somebody coming the other way yeah and she, not having been informed of the weekend's developments, that the, the, the so-called seven-foot rule is, is in fact based on nothing at all, uh, rather than continue bicycling in the opposite direction, stopped ten yards from me and waited with an expression of saintly patience on her face <laughs> while I went by yes. at a speed of probably 15 miles an hour, uh, four feet from her. Right. Uh, and and, and she, she, people are still convinced 
that there's a kind of bubonic plague which they will catch if they come within seven feet of somebody, even if that person is passing them at speed. Yes. That's how bad it is. But I wonder if that's more to do with our sort of manners than anything no, else. No, it wasn't manners. She genuinely was frightened that I would give her this bubonic plague. Right. Well, I, no, so but I mean, what, what I mean by that, though... The disease is much more serious yeah. than um, in most cases it is. But, Secondly, she thought that the that it, the ability to, 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 to we have to infect each other is much greater than it is. Yes. So these are two things which have been promoted by the government for weeks, and if it wants to bring it to an end, it's going to have to have some courage and start saying, actually, the danger is if, if the danger is over, or people will not be willing to yes. go back to work. The problem and, and with this is, and the, certainly the reason why that. we're having this argument is this. But unless it doesn't feel like an argument anymore. Unless it's made a mistake, it will be almost impossible for it to achieve that. No, interesting. No, what I mean by by politeness really is something you said a few weeks back when we first started talking. That you said that you adhere to the kind of the social distancing more out of respect for other people yeah. than out of your own sort of fears. Because rather like living in a Muslim country or or living in a in a foreign place where you have to behave slightly differently, you do it and you go along with it. I find myself doing it. I'm not frightened of anything as far as no. you know people unless somebody physically sneezes on me, which I, which I might not like. Very well, I wouldn't much. like that at any no. time. No, well exactly, but the point is is that you know i find myself standing back if somebody's you know i went out for example in my car yesterday as i was about to get into it there was it's a sort of private road where i am people were jogging towards me so i stood back behind the car waited for them to jog past me and then got in the car now i didn't do that because i feared them giving me the disease i did it out of kind of a, what, what you might term the new kind of the, the new norm, which is which is you stand back in case people become offended if you get too close to them. Yeah, but don't you smile when you do it? I do. Yeah, well, this person wasn't smiling. Yeah. She had a look of mingled terror and loathing on Maybe her. she just read one of your pieces well, and knew who you were. Well, that's possible, Mike, <laughs> I know. But, we, no. but, but listen, what about um, the situation where we now find ourselves, where, you know, I can't quite see how trains will be able to run under these yeah. circumstances. I can't see how planes can ever go back up into the sky. Well, planes, I mean, you, 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 might as well, you might as well order lead aeroplanes yeah. as this reduced the, the restrictions which are proposed. Mm. It, how can any airline, unless it exclusively caters to billionaires... How can any airline make a, make any kind of profit or even operate uh, within its costs mm. if it has to separate people to the level that, that's being required? You, they would simply be cutting out a huge amount of fresh air and very few passengers. It simply kills flying. And then there's this other thing, this proposal for quarantine on arrival in foreign countries. Who's going to go to somewhere where the, the moment you arrive, you're locked up in some hostel uh, surrounded by people in masks for two weeks? Mm. It's travel will cease. Yes, indeed. It's not, it's not. This is why I keep using the word disproportionate. The, the the actions being taken are not proportionate to the problem. No, the world couldn't function. There was a fascinating story in yesterday's Sunday Telegraph, uh, referring to something I don't even remember happening, though I was alive and conscious at the time. There was a big flu out, outbreak known as the Hong Kong or Mao flu in 1968-69. Mm. It killed 80,000 people in this country. Really? I don't remember yep. that either. It's fascinating. Yeah. And the, the, the government response was you know, to take various you know, precautions. But there wasn't all that much fuss about it. And it wasn't considered that outrageous. And certainly no one thought of closing down the economy for it, which was a jolly good thing, given the state of the British yeah. economy in 1968, because we've yeah. gone completely underwater. Well, quite. That but that, it, it's a very interesting difference. The difference is not that the thing didn't happen, not that people didn't die, but that the attitude of both government and people towards it was was different, and I, I personally, I think the, the it, when you think about the the eventual outcome of this, uh, and and this is this is a very important part of this. When we when we finally know how many excess deaths have resulted from this, 
and how different it has been from from the many other uh, outbreaks, not of not of COVID, but of influenza, mm-hmm. which come every few years for this country. When we work that out, will we then say, well, hang on, why did we go to these lengths for something which was not, in fact, that different from things which we've weathered before without anything like this fuss? Was it worth it that I'm now paying what is it, a VAT of 40%? Uh, was it worth it that you've lost your job? Was it worth it that that business is shut? Was it, you know, was, it, was, was, was it worth it that all these terrible things have happened for this thing which was not actually that out of the ordinary? But I suppose, well, I suppose the, 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 the answer I can give you at this moment is, is, is obviously premature because we don't know whether all of those things will happen. But what we can say is that with a very few notable exceptions, which you've mentioned on here before, almost every other country in the world has done what we've done uh, or worse. Well, no, they haven't, you see. And it simply, it simply isn't true that almost every country has, and there are major countries which have not. I, they, they have not done many. other things, but they're not. I mean, I, they, but that, I, what I'm concerned about is, is not what they've done, but what they have not done. And you look, as I say, at Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, major industrial countries, advanced, modern. Uh, That's only three, it, though, isn't it? It's, yeah, but they're, they're, they're comparable in many ways to us. I mean, two, two of them are islands, as we are. Um, and, and, and what they did was not to close down their economies. And then we have, as I say, the, the, the constant example, totally infuriating uh, to the pro-government fanatics of Sweden, uh, which has, has, again, not gone for the total close down which we chose. And, and these countries have not been visited by hecatombs of death. It simply has not happened. No, true. In fact, but, but there's, many, but there's... there's a very, very interesting piece of work which emerged over the weekend uh, suggesting very strongly that these, it's, 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 it's published by something called MedR, um, uh, um, Med, MedR X1V, I think it's a Latin number. It's, okay. it's called Full Lockdown Policies in Western Europe, Europe Countries Have No Evident Impacts on the COVID-19 Epidemic by Thomas A.J. Murnier. Uh, and it's, uh, it's available on the Internet and, and uh, through the BMJ and, and Yale. And it says that the, there is no evidence uh, that the the lockdown policies have any connection with uh, with what then happened. These strategies might not have saved any life in Western Europe, and this this fits together very much with the, with the work done by the the, the Centre for Evidence Based Medicine in Oxford, which has produced this uh, fascinating chart of the, the the deaths from COVID in this country on the days they actually took place, not mm. the day they were announced. Yeah. which still shows uh, each time it's revised, still shows clearly. The deaths in this country peaked on April the 8th. Now, the, the approximate time, it's difficult to say exactly, uh, between, the, um, between the onset uh, of, of, of the virus and death varies between 19 and 61 days. Now, the distance in March the 23rd, which was the day that Mr. Johnson panicked, and April the 8th is less than 19 and a good deal less than 61. Yeah. But, he's, uh, but his reasoning, please, hang on a second. His... Say with, some, um, with some force that there is very little evidence that the Johnson policy has actually saved any life. 
that something that some that some other reason. Yes, but I've always for said the, for, but, for the peaking of deaths on April the eighth. But I've always said, Peter, that the, the, the lockdown was not about saving lives. They were I know very you clear. said that, but it they doesn't were, it doesn't get over the point. Were, no, but the point is, is that we know mortally ill, and you, you wouldn't put them in intensive care. No, but it, you know, it, but we know. If you let me let me finish this point, please. If you if you know that the point of doing the lockdown was to was to spread the the disease more thinly, so that it did not overwhelm the NHS, that was what they achieved, and that was why they did what they did. I accept that it's now time to lift it. I, I totally agree with you. And I think that we, with testing and with more knowledge, yes, we can do more. But at that time, when it looks as though the, uh, the acceleration of cases and the acceleration of numbers was going to be massive, they had to take some action because if they hadn't taken action, you would probably now be standing around saying, why did they let so many people die and overwhelm the NHS? Can we do what, what they use that term, which they incessantly use on, on, on um, Radio 4's In Our Time programmes when they get academics together and unpack your statement? Yes. Uh, what do you say is that, it's, it, that, first of all, it was obvious that, or, or that the... Um, that this was the intended effect. And also, you seem to me to assume that because the... The, the hospital intensive care units were not overwhelmed. Uh, but the reason for this uh, was that the action was taken. Well, I have no other reason to believe it. Well, he, but m m maybe so. But he, he, I, I, I have to put this to you. You are the one who supported an action which has done damage to the British economy, which will probably last for decades, which will do probably. deep and deep and painful damage to the National Health Service, Possibly. Uh, which is, while it's going on, causing grave difficulties to the treatment of such things as cancers because they're not being detected, and of heart attacks and other things because people are not going to hospital when they should be. Well, that's, that's minimal, though. Oh, I don't know about that. It's certainly not minimal if it happens to you. But the, well, the, if I got a heart attack, I'd be not, going to hospital. Not, I would not be going. Not measured yet, but the point is, it is it, it has a, it, as well as being damaging to the economy, something which some people dismiss as being a um, sort of monopoly capitalist um, obsession, which only bothers people with top hats. But the economy affects all of us, and the economy affects our lives and health, and it's done terrible damage. So it's done all that damage. And it's also it's 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 made probably the most severe attack on individual liberty in this country for something like 600 years. And the, if you want to pursue such a policy, it's no good saying you can't prove it didn't work. You have to produce some sort of evidence that it did. Yeah. And search as I may around the world. And indeed, in this country, too, I can find nothing resembling evidence that this policy has actually done any good. And you say, well, it was designed to, pre to prevent the overwhelming of, of intensive care. Well, yes. actually, this is actually exactly the same point as designed to avoid death, because people aren't put into intensive care unless they are so ill that doctors fear they will die otherwise. We're dealing with the same... Yes, area. but lots of people go the into intensive thing. care, Peter. Hang on. People aren't, no, but aren't, listen, aren't Peter, to the, to the, people to the go into intensive care. They do not go into intensive care. Peter, people go into intensive care and they do not all die. Many no, of them don't. come out. So if you, haven't got, but if you haven't got enough room for the people who need to go into intensive care, then they definitely no, die. No, and that's where point, they've my, saved the lives. My point is that the only objective measure which we have of the level of danger from the disease and of the level of virulence of the disease, the only objective measure which we possess, uh, clumsy as it is because of the, the very loose classification of, of COVID, I have to say, but the only objective measure which we possess is the measure of the number of people who've died. There isn't any other. That's the one we have. That is the only indicator we have of what pressure there was on intensive care units. 
And what it shows is that that pressure began to diminish from April the 8th when the number of deaths peaked. Well, that may you well can't be. get out of it. It's the same thing. Intensive care and deaths, if you want to measure the pressure on intensive care, then the only indicator which we have to consult, there is no other, has to be that. And I'm sure if, you, if eventually we get, I think it's been, uh, the, the government has stopped publishing it, but for, for actually quite reasonable reasons. But when we eventually get the figures for the, for the actual occupation of intensive care beds in this period, if, if, if they ever are published, I think you will find they follow the same pattern. Well, that so may we well be. That may well so be. We but once again, the... once again, I'm afraid we've reached the end of our uh, Peter Hitchens half hour. So I thank you again, Peter. We'll be back with you next Monday uh, for the next instalment of, uh, of Peter Hitchens and his belief that this is all a complete and utter uh, unnecessary waste of time. I disagree with him still on that because I think at the end of the day... Um, it's all still, from his point of view, supposition. He says there isn't enough evidence. We will talk about that again come next Monday. Um, but there also isn't any evidence that the world has collapsed and the economies are all going to go to hell in the handcart either. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here until one o'clock, of course. Ian Collins taking over from then and Dan Wooten's here uh, from four and we will be, of course, hearing live the daily briefing from... From the government right now though uh, because of the time of day it's time for our homeschooling section of the show so uh, let's hope you've gathered your children around the radio uh, or around the television or around the DAB unit that you have in the house or indeed around the Alexa whatever it is that you're listening to us on or watching us on we're going to talk now about earthquakes with Dr David Whitehouse author of Journey to the Centre of the Earth because earthquakes are one of those incredible things which are fascinating, I think, to almost anyone uh, who's got an interest in in any form of life around the globe. Uh, Dr David, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I've always been quite fascinated by seismic activity of any kind. I've, I've been to Mount Etna, I've been to Mount Vesuvius, I love volcanoes, mm. you know, earthquakes have a kind of... fact. When I was in Sicily visiting Etna, it was, that, it was a couple of years ago when they had those quite big earthquakes in central Italy around about the same time, and I was sort of slightly terrified and in awe at the same time because I woke up and looked out the window and saw Etna and thought, I wonder if it's going to go when we're here, you know, and it, and it actually went about two weeks after we left. Well, there's some evidence of uh, earthquakes uh, causing volcanic eruptions or starting them off. Um, and in fact, uh, of course, volcanoes um, produce tremors around around them anyway, as yes. the as the molten rock is forcing its way up from the hot uh, depths of the earth uh, to reach the surface. It uh, causes rock to fragment, to uh, to expand and contract. And so, one way to tell if a volcano is uh, going to erupt or is starting to become active is to put sensors all the way around it to see if the ground is tilting. Mm. And if the ground starts to tilt and rise, you know you ought to take more attention of that volcano. Yes. And as far as the sort of the history of the Earth is concerned, I mean, has, has the level of volcanic activity pretty much always been the same or was it at one time much higher when, when sort of continents were forming and that kind of thing? Well, it was in the past. Um, the Earth, when it was very young, um, had a great deal of volcanic activity because it was, uh, it was settling down. Mm. There was a time when the Earth's surface was molten and it was full of volcanoes and um, crust was trying to form and there were earthquakes in this. But that was a long time ago. There's, yes. There's no 
measurable difference in the number of earthquakes that we have over the past few thousand years, as far as we can tell. Mm. They are, you know, the big ones are very rare and they occur in specific areas of the earth. Uh, the small ones are much more common. Every, every moment of every day, somewhere in the world, is having an earthquake, mostly being very minor and probably not strong enough to be felt by humans. No, quite. Well, I mean, we, I'm told we have quite a few in this country that we don't we do. really ever yeah. know about. And whenever you see the odd newspaper piece appearing, it's because somebody's felt it. Um, but, well, I mean, I remember when I was working in newspapers, you'd ring up some seismologist and he'd go, <laughs> yeah, well, you had one last week as well, but you guys didn't notice, you know. So. That's right. Yeah, they, we, we have perhaps 20 or 30 earthquakes in this country, and they are felt by people. Uh, not very serious. Mm. Very rarely does a chimney come down, and then it must be in a very poor state. Ornaments falling off shelves is the most common um, sign of a, a minor yes. earthquake. But as you say, there are many, many more that uh, we just do not feel. Yes. I mean, I always marvel at the footage sometimes of, I think I saw some from Japan one time, and there was another one in California, where you just, you know, somebody's filming it, and you can't quite believe what you're seeing, can you? Well, that's right, with the shelves falling yeah. down, with, with, with uh, uh, lamp, lamps swinging from side to side and people running for cover. Today, the buildings we build in um, California, in, in Japan, which is the most earthquake-prone country in the world, are actually very good indeed. Mm. Uh, they are very high standard. You need a very, very big earthquake to help, cause them to have a problem. The problem with um, earthquakes is, particularly in the past... Um, and particularly today when they take place in out-of-the-way places, is that the standard of houses mm. in many countries is very poor indeed. Yes. And when you get a lot of people killed by an earthquake, it's usually because they're all in small mud hut houses or small, small houses that are, yes. you know, a little bit of shaking brings them down. Yes, because they had a terrible one, didn't they, in Nepal? Relatively mm, exactly. recently, and yeah. that was that was a much higher death toll than than, than a, a stronger one in California in the end. Because I was in, um, I got sent, funnily enough, to San Francisco in 1989 after that earthquake, um, and I checked into the um, Fisherman's Wharf Sheraton. I always remember, and they handed me my room key and a torch. <laughs> and I said, uh, what's the torch for? They're like, we haven't got any power. I said, we've got power in the lobby. They said, yeah, in the lobby we've got power. And I went to bed that night, and I woke up in the middle of the second big tremor which was around about six, I think, on the Richter mm -hmm. scale. The original uh, earthquake, I think, was more like a 7.9 or something. And I'd, I couldn't describe it, honestly. I, didn't, I, I really didn't know what it was. I, I felt like my, I was sort of levitating, the room was moving around me, and all the things that your brain tells you aren't happening are happening. That, that's right. I've, I've never been in one which... Well, I, you know, I've been in earthquakes where um, people have told me afterwards and yes. you, you feel sort of, what, what was that? And it didn't disturb you. Anymore. I've never been in one where, you know, the ground shakes or the yeah. hotel shakes. Uh, but a most, a most disturbing, as you say, to your equilibrium. Um, and uh, the natural reaction, of course, is to get outside. Yeah. Um, although in... Um, in Tokyo, this, that, that wasn't always a good idea because some masonry does start to fall yes. in, in a very big one. But basically, in developed countries, stay put. The, the buildings are very good. Mm. Um, the problem in many other countries is that although they've got good building regulations, they're not always adhered to, and houses can be slapped up. But yeah. earthquakes, in general, we know where they're going to occur. 
but we just don't know when. And no. we know, for instance, that San Andreas Fault in California. Yeah. And also further up the coast near Seattle, we know there's going to be an enormous earthquake there at some stage. Right. Uh, but we don't know when, and, and people take their chances, uh, as they do living on the slopes of volcanoes, because volcanoes are enormously rich soils and produce a great living, provided you're not there when it goes up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. That's the, the $64,000 question. And I suppose, I mean, so you're not really getting any better at predicting them, as it were, in terms of actual timings. We... A little bit. Mm. I mean, it's very difficult because earthquakes occur because the outer layer of the Earth's crust is is, is brittle. Mm. And when you get to... The, a crust is d divided into plates and they rub up against each other and they stick due to friction. And when they one of them has to move, all this tension is, and energy is released. Yeah. And that's an earthquake. And it settles down again and the tension builds up again. So we can measure the tension building up. Uh, we have sensors... Uh, and we can also um, have things like centers on the surface, which when there are minor ripples, we can map them mm. underground, just the way that you can map your brain, you know, with sensors on your skull and, and all sorts of, you know, scans. We can get very detailed pictures of what's going underneath. Mm. But what we can't really do in any great degree of accuracy is say the tension is building up and it's going to break tomorrow. Yeah. You know, the, the breakage point is always sometime in the next few years. But mm. you do know that um, earthquakes come in clusters, and, and sometimes the first earthquake is the beginning of a series. Yes. But when you get a really big one, you can usually say, well, the tension is, is relieved now for a while at For least. a while, yeah, because I've always noticed that there's a kind of a chain reaction as well. I mean, like I was mentioning when I was in Sicily that time, mm -hmm. there had been a couple of quite big earthquakes in central Italy. And then sure enough, you know, a couple of months later, there was indeed some activity uh, at Mount Etna. And then I think the next one was, was, was on the other side of the plate, kind of more towards the Middle East. Um, and so there is a kind of interconnectivity, isn't there? Oh, yes, there is. Earthquakes do come in clusters uh, from the, you know, one earthquake it, you know, is in a fault uh, underground and that fault can be connected to other faults. Mm. It can be multiple complicated faults. And there's some evidence occasionally that an earthquake in one region could start an earthquake in another region. Uh, but they do come... Even in one particular area, they do come in clusters. And the mm. big problem, of course, when you're dealing with an earthquake um, disaster is, that, is the earthquake you're re reacting to, is that the final one yeah. or is it a foreshock? Yes. You know, is there going to be a bigger one sometime, anytime in, in the future? Mm. That's, that makes de dealing with earthquakes very difficult. Yes, it does. And, and you've started to measure them. I and mean, you're probably going to tell me you've been doing this for a long time, but it seems to me it's relatively recently that we've started measuring them as to their depth. We always used to measure the Richter scale as to well, the highness I, of the number. Actually, I should say the Richter scale is it's old hat now. We use a thing called the energy scale, okay. which, is, which is slightly different. The, the energy scale, uh, which is often naught to 10, uh, tells you something about the energy on the surface, mm. the energy we experience. Um, as well as it gives you some indication when you know the depth of the earthquake as to how much energy is being released, released in it. Uh, yes, so it's about it's about 18, 90 years we started to uh, to develop seismographs. The first seismometer um, was probably in the middle of the 1800s um, from Germany, right. uh, and they got sufficiently uh, more sensitive. And I think about 1920, 1930, around about that time, we started to have lots of them around the around the world. And we're able to see the patterns of vibrations, the pattern of shaking from these earthquakes. And that gives you evidence as to how deep they are, mm. uh, as to whether they're the deep, strong one or a surface one that's, uh, that's um, not quite so strong. And we also found out that 
earthquakes are limited to the skin of the earth because if you go down into the earth the rock becomes hotter more molten and plastic and it doesn't stick in the same way as it does on the surface it flows and it gives way to the forces it's only on the surface where the rock is brittle mm. and particularly at these boundaries between the the continent the um, tectonic plates that things happen that they stick and they they grind against each other and mm. if you look at a google a map of earthquakes global map of earthquakes you can see they follow um they follow these tectonic plates. The Ring of Fire around the Pacific yes. is well known, and and also you get um, you get volcanoes and earthquakes in the same region. And would you ever see a, a sort of a, an event which was so big that somehow continents might move again, or is well, is that never going to happen? That's that's never going to happen. The, if you look at a map of the Earth, you see the continents and you see the sea. Uh, and in fact, there are two types of surface on the Earth. There are the old continents, which are made of light rocks, yeah. which have been around for billions of years. And they move around to form different shapes and pieces. Uh, uh, at the moment, they're fairly well scattered. In the future, they'll, they'll come together to form a supercontinent. But the, in between the continents, there is the ocean floor. And the ocean floor is young. Mm. The ocean floor is being made uh, and destroyed very quickly. No part of the ocean floor is older than 200 million years, which is nothing in geological terms. Mm. And that's been made welling up in mid-ocean ridges, and then it, sh it dives down underneath the continents. And it's where it interacts with the continents, where this ocean... Uh, uh, rock floor, the ocean bed, strikes the continent and is forced underneath. That's where you get a lot of slippage and build-up of energy, as well as the scraping of the tectonic plates mm. alongside each other. So if you Google a map of earthquakes, you will see the, they mark the edges of the tectonic plates. Interesting. Fascinating. I, I'm always fascinated by these kind of conversations. We could talk for ages, but I've got to go because we're out of time. Dr time. David Whitehouse, thank, thank you. you so much. Author of Journey to the Centre of the Earth, all about earthquakes. What a fascinating subject. I really, really have to tell you. Um, I, I can't explain what, what it felt like to be in that uh, the thing in San Francisco. It was really quite bizarre. Very, very strange indeed. Never seen anything like it. When you're looking at a wall which is solid, but it's moving, you literally can't take it in. There's no chance. We will be taking your calls coming up because it's uh, Ian Collins from one o'clock. We'll be here all week, of course. Don't forget, there's a podcast coming out uh, of this show. You can watch us on YouTube. You can watch us back on YouTube, the whole show, if you missed any of it. You can also, of course, watch all the old shows and you can watch uh, Plank of the Week as well. We'll be doing a new one tomorrow, uh, which will be great. And uh, we shall be uh, uh, telling you all about that tomorrow after we've recorded it as well. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 monday to friday on talk radio via dab online or via the talk radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at talk radio during the show to have your say mid-morning with mike graham talk radio Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.